Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and my guest today is one incredible young woman. She's biked across Canada, New Zealand, and South America, and she's a strong advocate for mental health. Now, before I get into her story, I want to introduce you to a friend of the show, Andrew Hunter. He's the host of The Club, a sandwich podcast. We connected online. He liked what was happening here and vice versa, so we figured, why not get in touch? Andrew, where did the idea for this podcast come from? I noticed one day that while I was browsing Facebook, a lot of people were discussing very non-happy things. It, it was almost as if we were drowned with all of this terrible news of things that's happening in the world. So I decided to be the change that I wanted to see and ultimately landed on sandwiches. Everyone has their own opinions about many different sandwiches, especially hot dogs and open face sandwiches. So I started with Facebook posts. It took off like crazy. People appreciated these posts, and I decided to take it another step farther and record a podcast with it. Where can people find your podcast? Oh, you can find my podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Podbean, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcast from. And you could find it on our website, which is www.cherryhunter.media. Thanks, Andrew. Today's guest is Amy Tunstall. She's a wilderness firefighter. She cycled over 17,000 kilometers across the world, raising awareness for mental health. And she's not done yet. She joins me from Alberta. Here's her story. done some pretty incredible things. Uh, you've biked across Canada three years ago. You bike across New Zealand the year after that. And then you bike South America the year after that. What was driving you and what does drive you each time that you make these expeditions? I think what drives me is just that need to go explore. There's so much out there that I haven't discovered yet. And the two expeditions previous, the Canada journey and the New Zealand journey, it was mainly to learn about myself. I knew I needed change in my life. I knew that I wasn't happy in the situation where I was. So a lot of the trips was me trying to discover myself. After I came back from New Zealand, I decided I wanted to see more of the world and I had South America in my mind. It's something that I haven't experienced before. I never had been to a developing country before that. So I thought South America would be a nice change of pace and it was exactly that. Once I completed South America, I realized that there's so much to the world that like I haven't even yet touched. And yeah, just just experience. I'm someone who values experience a lot. So to have that is just unbelievable. Once you get started, it's kind of hard to stop, isn't it? Yeah. When I first started my journey across Canada, one of the big things was I ended up in, in St. John's. And instead of it being this like super joyous moment of I just completed something huge, it was more of what now? Like, what do I do next? Because it's just a completely different way of living. It, it's really hard to explain, but you're living in the moment and I find that a lot of times when I come back I'm on my phone or I'm distracted by a number of things but basic needs is what you focus on like I'm hungry I'm tired and you really focus on yourself and every time I've started a trip I've always been planning something else halfway through so when I was almost done Canada I ended up planning my whole New Zealand trip. And when I was in New Zealand, I was already thinking ahead to another trip. 
you have so much time by yourself that you're always thinking ahead to something new. Throughout these expeditions that you've done and throughout your travels and your journeys, you have been a consistent voice for mental health awareness. And for you, the reason is, is one that hits close to home. And it's, it's one that for me resonates quite closely too. Why is it something that's important to you? You know, I think mental health is something that a lot of people don't fully understand. And when you deal with suicide, it's a really hard death to try and cope with. A lot of times we're so used to physical illness as opposed to mental illness. And my entire life I've kind of grown up with people who don't understand or who don't care. I was five years old when my father committed suicide. And it was a really hard process for me. It took me many years to get over to understand because you're left asking a lot of questions. And one of the biggest things for me was that people would be disgusted when I told them. They would tell me that he was selfish and nobody wants to hear that. And people don't realize that it is an illness like it says in the name. So. I just wanted to bring up a point that, you know, it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to experience and go through it because I go through it by myself. And I try and get people help or I try and inspire someone. I try and make it different in, in at least one person's life because it, it's huge. Just you saying something or you being that support system for someone can make a difference between life and death. You've also mentioned your own experiences and your own mental health journey. What has that been like for you in grappling with anxiety and depression and in coming to find yourself in that experience? So with my very first two journeys, it was a lot about finding myself. For a long time, I was unhappy in my everyday living. I knew things needed to change. I didn't like talking about it because it had already happened in my family, and I had seen just how how much it can affect one's family. So I, I kept it a secret for a very, very, very long time. And when I first started my bike trip, I was like, oh shit, you know, like, this affects me too. And I was lucky because I found a way to cope and to deal with it through the outdoors, through expeditions, cycling, just really staying healthy and active. But I always have my ups and downs. Like, mental health is, it, you don't just get over it. You're constantly dealing with it. You're constantly trying to figure out, you know, how to be normal, how to feel normal. And for myself, it's been quite the journey with that. So one of the major differences was my family actually telling me that, you know, I should probably get some help. I kept breaking down constantly. And it's hard on a family because you usually tend to lash out at the people you love the most. They're the ones who see you in this state. It gets to a point where, like, I wasn't leaving my room for almost two weeks where I was basically a prisoner to my bed and into my home, and that's no way to live your life, but I can be here and say that things can change and they can get better. Let's start with the Canada trip, the one that kick-started things into motion for you. Yeah. You've written that before the Canada trip, you were at your lowest, and without that trip, you don't know where you would be. Uh, take me back to that point in time in the state that you were in and 
the opportunity presenting itself to do this trip across Canada? Yeah, so when I say lowest, it just means that, like, I had no self-worth. I had no direction, no fulfillment. I had no energy. I was constantly exhausted. I was constantly breaking down. For me, it wasn't that suicide was an option, but I was to the point where it's like, what what is worth living for? And what mental health does is it completely isolates you from the rest of the world. And nothing you do makes you happy. And so I felt like change needed to happen. I went to college and one of my friends, it was his dream to cycle across Canada. I'd always been a person to say yes to opportunity and he asked if I wanted to cycle across Canada. So before that I had no idea that people cycled for extremely long distances <laughs> or that that was even an option. I was like, what? People do that for fun? That's so weird. So before that point in time I had never even like rode a bike for more than a few minutes and I knew I needed change so so I said yes I purchased a ticket to Vancouver Island set for the next year after I was 19 when we decided to ride across I was 20 when I first started the journey and it was a lot of just it was, it was kind of like a mess of prep I didn't know what to do what to bring I overpacked I had like literally a house on my bike and and everything was just strapped on with bungee cords yeah it was it was a really great learning opportunity and before that I hadn't even left Ontario so it, it was a huge jump to get in this plane and take off to a side of the country I had never seen before and then to to look down on that plane and see everything you're about to bike across and to me it was it was like is this real life? Is this really happening right now? And and throughout that trip, I made this, this realization that there is more to do, more to go on with. I was in, it got to a point where I, I just finished the northern section of Ontario, mm -hmm. and I broke down with this realization that I was going to be okay, that everything's going to be okay. And I think cycling really helped me with that, because you start living one day at a time when my mental health state was I'd wake up, I'd be exhausted, and I'd be like, what's worth going on? How do you go on? And then cycling kind of brought that back to me, where it was like, oh, you just take it one step at a time. And so I think there was a huge correlation between this healing process for me and cycling and just being outdoors. You mentioned you had only rode maybe a couple minutes on a bicycle before doing this trip. <laughs> what was that early stage of the bike ride like for you as far as the transition from going from you know an amateur cyclist to <laughs> suddenly spending your days on a bicycle it was chaotic we um we brought our bikes to vancouver and they're in these boxes we had to set them up i had never put together a bike before so everything was breaking down on it managed to get it to a bike shop and they're like "Ooh, that's not good <laughs> So it, it was a matter of like me putting everything together and then just committing to do it. We like we bought the plane ticket. We were there. We were going to do it. In the early stages, my biggest fear was the mountains because they're intimidating. They're terrifying. 
you're biking up them. One of our first few days, you leave Mission British Columbia and climb up over Allison's Pass, and yep. that was day three of our entire adventure. So within three days of leaving Vancouver, we're like, we're climbing a mountain, and it's just switchbacks all the way to the top. And for me, that climb was huge. I couldn't sleep the entire night. I was barely eating. I was so nervous. I had a few cliff bars and then and then we did it and we got to the top and it was a huge relief. And I think that was the turning point for me where I was like, this is achievable. And I would soon learn that the mountains were probably the easiest part of the whole <laughs> adventure. It it's more mental than it is physical and within about two weeks we were in peak physical stamina and ability. And, yeah, it's just an adjustment because your body's not used to it. And the biggest thing is, like, that mental component. You go as long as you need to. You take days off when you have to. At first, we started following. There's this, like, How to Bike Across Canada book that we picked up from MEC, and we were following that like people follow the Bible. And, you know, we'd look through it every day, and he was doing like 180 kilometers, and we're like, this is so unrealistic. Hmm. We were at like 60 kilometers at the time. So for us, we decided to chuck the book, and it was probably the best thing we did because then we started allowing for opportunities to present itself. You've mentioned that moment for you in Lake Superior. You're about halfway across the country, and you realize that you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that moment, where you were specifically north of Superior, What's going on around you at the time when this epiphany hits you? Yeah, it was, we were just northern Ontario, and it was just incredibly stunning. We're cycling up around the 17th, and it kind of follows Lake Superior, and you have these, like, peak areas where the lake, it literally looks like an ocean. It's gorgeous. There's no one around you. Towns are far and few between it was we at that point we had about 15 days of headwinds so this was the first day that it stopped like the wind just stopped blowing in our faces (laughs) usually when I cycle I like to cycle by myself so my friend was up ahead of me and yeah I was just really grateful and thankful that I had seen this and experienced this and I was in my home province and I just had made it so far. You know, people kind of doubted the whole adventure. They laughed when we said we were going to bike across Canada. And now we had ridden over 3,000 kilometers. And it just became so natural and and so beautiful. And, yeah, I just kind of broke down because I, I realized I had a lot to live for. Clara Hughes is an influence of yours. And that same summer that you're biking across Canada, she's doing the same thing. Yes. And you crossed paths with her at the time. Where was that and what was it like? So the whole way we had been following Clara Hughes or she'd been following us, we were kind of leapfrogging across Canada. I saw her speak in Winnipeg. We left a few days before her, so we were up ahead. And her team passed us on the road. First it was her car. So we actually met up with her, gave us a lot of cliff bars, some cliff gals, and just talked to us. And and it was really nice to hear from them. And then Clara Hughes had came, and I was a little starstruck because she was the one who kind of jump-started it 
before me. And just an athlete who has accomplished so much, uh, two-time Olympic medal champion in both the Winter and Summer Olympics, like no other athlete has done that, to be, to be saying and coming out and being like, look, I'm not okay. And mental health affects a lot of people and people you don't even realize that it does. You know, as an Olympic athlete, I could only imagine everyone thinks you have it together when really you're just struggling to keep things together. So it was really inspirational to see her. She is just such a strong, powerful individual who, before she did... Clara Hughes's big ride, I don't think people were really talking about it, especially with uh, Bell Let's Talk. Like, I think they had a huge impact starting this talk about mental health. Fast forward along the bike ride in Canada, you are in New Brunswick, and there's a man that you meet along the way, and he sees you, and he sees your bike, and he starts to tear up. Yeah. Uh, tell me that story and the effect that that had on you. That moment really put things into perspective for me and kind of why I keep continuing to do these treks and these journeys. So I was in New Brunswick at a gas station and I just pulled in and this man who was probably in his 50s, early 60s, came up to me and was almost in tears. And he said that I was living his dream. And that whole day cycling, I got to think about it. And I'm like, I don't want to get to the point in life where I continue to think I wish I would have. That just really put things into perspective for me, that people don't go out there and live out these ideas that they have in their head. And just seeing his reaction and how this had always been a thought in his mind really impacted me. I don't know what it was exactly, but it just affected me in how I started thinking about life. So you mentioned already that during this trip across Canada, you start thinking about New Zealand and what would become your trip across New Zealand. Take me through that trip and some of the experiences from that. Well, cycle touring isn't for everyone or adventuring isn't for everyone. Not always do people get time off work or put experiences first in life. So I knew I'd have to start doing these trips and expeditions on my own. And to me, New Zealand was a very good starting point because it was easy. People spoke English there. I am a huge fan of Nat Geo, and so I see all these incredible photos and videos about the two islands, and I'm like, that is my next destination. And so I went there, I booked a ticket, and I started my first solo trek. Now, in the country, in New Zealand, there's a moment for you, I believe it's on the North Island, it's getting closer to Christmas time, and you meet some locals there. Can you tell me that story, and what ended up becoming a Christmas in New Zealand for you? So, I had just finished up around the North Cape in New Zealand, and I was heading along the East Coast, I was supposed to get to a festival. I was going to bike around the East Cape. But in my experience, I realized that like you don't have to cycle every kilometer or you can't say no to opportunities. So what it was, I was just in a small little town, decided to go for a hike, ended up coming into this cove, and there were three 
Maori guys coming out of the water and they were in full scuba gear. They had just been diving and they came out with big saikina that had no idea what it was. So I was curious and asked them. They offered me some kina because it's a New Zealand kind of tradition. It was really fishy, <laughs> but I, I made just simple conversation with them. And the next day they saw me cycling just on the road and they asked if if I was alone and if I wanted to spend Christmas with them. So in the Maori community, it's very much family oriented. And so we'd be traveling around and stopping at all these different families along the way. It was such an incredible experience because Maori people know their land. It was the best car ride I have ever been in because in New Zealand, one thing has the English name and the other has the Maori name, so we were going through that. And these people have lived on this land for so long that they knew every fishing hole. I remember stopping on the side of the road and there was this waterfall like 20 feet back in the bush that I never would have known that was there. So just these little things that a normal tourist wouldn't know I was being shown. So as we're continuing our traveling, it's almost Christmas at this point. Our goal is to make it around the Cape and head to this family celebration. When we get there, it turns out to be one of their elders' birthdays and there's Maori people from all over and Maoris have like mochas, which is like their their tattoos and and the women have it like right on their chin and it was really cool to see this and experience this and in celebration of one of their elders birthdays all the women were singing everyone was dancing it was just such a unique experience one thing you've written about in the past is the moment when you say yes to a crazy idea and for you in that case uh, it was a trip across South America by bicycle Tell me about that, the magic of saying yes, even when it might sound crazy. The magic of saying yes. I just came back from New Zealand when I received a message on Facebook if I wanted to go and cycle across South America. So I thought about it. It was with a complete stranger who I had never met before, but I decided to say yes to this idea. And, and then we started planning it, and we started talking more. Most people would not just take off with a random stranger for three months to bike across, you know, a pretty serious continent. And as it continues, we continue, like, our prep, and then, and then the moment finally comes when this is all happening and we're all coming together. So... I took off from my job, which is wildland firefighting in the summers. I drove down to Seattle and parked my car there for three months. Went on a road trip with Jake, who was my cycling adventure buddy for the next three months after that. And out of it, I was able to gain such an awesome friendship, see a continent in a totally new, different way. And, and South America was hard. It was a very difficult place to cycle in. There were days where it was 40 degrees Celsius, and it's just before the rainy season, so it's super, super muggy. And, mm. 
it, it, it was difficult. There was a huge language barrier for me, so it was nice to have someone there. And just going to a place that in Bolivia, it's actually a developing country, so people live a lot differently than we do. For example, you, you just buy coca leaves like on the side of the road and like people barter for stuff, which I, I thought was really cool. The roads are just completely rubble. People live in, in shacks. They're not by no, no standard houses in North America, but this was their reality. And it, it was really challenging physically because it was so hot, so humid, so demanding, and adding that language barrier to it intensified it. But, you know, if I didn't say yes to that opportunity, I wouldn't have experienced it and got the encouragement that, yes, I could do something like that. You mentioned the rubble piece about the roads. How many flats did you get on that trip? On that trip, it was horrible. So on my previous trips, I'd get like one or two flats. That trip, though, I had approximately 11. And the reason for this was, <laughs> in Brazil, it was really nice. The roads were paved. But as soon as we hit Bolivia, it turned to a nice like double-lane highway into just rubble. I, I don't even know how, like potholes everywhere, big rocks just in the middle of the road. And we were on road bikes. So I think our, our tires were like 26 inches. Like they were tiny. They were not meant for those roads. We had no suspension. Everything just kept breaking down on us. <laughs> you started your trip in Rio. And that first night leaving the city, you're biking through the favelas. Tell me about that moment for you. It probably wasn't the smartest moment of my life. Uh, <laughs> the Rio favelas are one of the most dangerous places in South America that you can visit. The ones we went through are apparently super dangerous. We didn't know this. We didn't put our research in. But it was it was insane. There, There's livestock walking in the middle of the roads. There's people walking around with guns. There's garbage everywhere. Like, we knew we were coming into a favela because we could see smoke off in the distance because they didn't have a place to put garbage. They'd burn it. And, like, every time we came to one, we just, there was this smell to it. We're miserable. It's not a good time. Nothing's really going right because we haven't gotten our systems down pat yet. And there's nowhere to go. The outskirts go on and on. It, it was probably about 100 kilometers of cycling of just, like, buildings and people. No grass, no nothing. We were expecting to find a park or something we could put our tents up in and it we just kept going because there was nowhere. It was just houses stocked on houses on houses. Like it was it was insane. And later that night, it's getting to be about ten PM. We're super exhausted. We've been now cycling for nearly thirteen hours. We planned to stop quite a bit before that, but there was nowhere to stop. There were no hotels, no nothing. So we're trying to find a place to just set up a tent. We go knock on some churches. They're like, no, 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 you can't stay here. We continue our journey. Finally find this area. And I'm like, okay, there's some trees. Let's set up down there. So Jake goes down first, and it turns out to be a sewage wasteland. Uh, he steps in about a foot of sewage, 
And he comes up and he's so pissed because I said this would be a great camp spot. And we barely know each other at the time, so tension is really, really high. He smells like shit. Like, there's no other way to describe it. He has sewage on him to his knee. He's mad. I'm like, okay, let's just continue. We use a whole pack of just wet wipes on his leg to try and sort it all out. Later that night, we finally find, like, this little area. We set up a tent, but it's still in the middle of the favelas. It's just this one random piece of grass that we could find with, like, two trees. And I was so nervous because we had seen people walking around with guns. Like, I've heard horror stories. So we set up our tent, and I hear these, like, explosions going off. And I'm like, what did I get myself into? Turns out to just be fireworks, but it was terrifying. So... That was cycling through the favelas. There's another moment, and you mentioned the the transition going into Bolivia, but also just at the point of going up to the border, crossing the border, you encounter a couple teenagers, I believe. Uh, Tell me about that experience, getting into Bolivia. So we originally were going to follow the Trans-Amazonia, which is the highway that goes from east to west, the continental crossing, Brazil wasn't really what we expected because it was more modernized. It definitely had a lot of Western influence on it, and that's not really what we wanted. So we decided to dip down into Bolivia. And once we got to the border, we are greeted by three militia. And they're teenagers in uniform holding AK-47s. Now, our, our road turned from beautifully paved to this just destroyed road, there's these kids holding guns, then these guys start talking to us, and they don't know any English, we don't know any Spanish, but we notice their Captain America uh, phone case, <laughs> and they open Jake's passport, and they say, status unidas, status unidas, like they're so excited, because they wanted to show us their Captain America stuff, and so we were kind of terrified, I didn't have my yellow fever shot, so I thought we'd just get turned around at the border, When we were entering Brazil, we didn't need visas, but if we got turned around, then we would have had to go get visas, and we had already stamped out of the country at that time. So we're in this no-man's zone, and the no-man's zone lasts about 100 kilometers, where you're like, I don't know if I'm getting into this country or not. So it was really awesome to have these guards excited that we were there, and so it turned into more of a photo op than anything else and they let us into the country but it was it was it was quite a shock (laughs) there's a a quote that you've shared in the past and it's a great one it says fear defeats more people than anything else in this world tell me about that realization for you i think it comes back to that time in new brunswick where that guy came up to me in tears And because I spent a lot of time thinking about it, why didn't he accomplish this? Like, why didn't he go out and do it if he wanted to do it so much? And I think the biggest thing that holds us back in life is fear. Fear of what other people are going to think. Fear that we're not going to make ends meet. We have so much fear built up inside of us. And, yeah, it's just that thing that holds us back. Because what if something goes wrong? What if I don't make it? Or what if I fail? What if... There's so many what-ifs we tell ourselves that we never end up doing that thing. So for me, that quote is huge because 
if I let fear get the best of me, then I would have never done the things that I've done. This fall, you're going to be hiking the Bruce Trail. That's 900 kilometers. It's your first long-distance hike. How are you feeling about it right now? I'm a little nervous. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I've done hiking before. My longest hike had been 125 kilometers. But I really wanted to do something different for this next adventure. I had done three cycling trips in three years. For me, when I was in South America, I made the realization that I had finished helping myself. I knew where I needed to be in life, and I'm happy with where I am. But then I came to this discovery, but how can I help out others? And I think that people don't understand how to access the outdoors, and it seems so simple, like it's out there. But if you're not taught skills about hiking or canoeing or biking or whatever, if you're not around that when you're a kid, then it's completely alien to you. So with this hike, my goal is to get the community out and walking or friends out and walking and meeting me on this trail. I wanted to do something local. There's a huge benefit in the healing that the outdoors can do to people who are suffering with mental health issues. So the trail is 900 kilometers or 1 million steps and so my event is a million steps for mental health and it goes back to mental health is like taking a long walk or a long bike ride because you're doing it one at a time. They're very similar. You need to live in that moment and you need to experience it and handle it in small portions. You don't get the thing done or you don't deal with it in a day. You don't notice it right away. It takes a while to get there. It's a process to get there. You can't expect results overnight is where I'm getting at with that. It's like an extended period of time. So what's the plan for you as far as the day-to-day -day goes in terms of feeding yourself and uh, finding a place to sleep as you're on this trail? So everything's done. I'm self-supported. For food-wise, I have a total of three drop boxes that I'm going to mail to myself. It will contain like nine days of food, ten days of food, and I'm going to prep everything beforehand. I've already started the preparations for it. And yeah, it's going to be about 38 days in the tent. Oh, another important question, how can people help out if they want to get involved, whether it's joining you or donating? I mean, you're raising money along the way. Uh, how can people get involved? Yeah, so there's a few things that you can do. For starters, aimoutside.com has all the information you need. On that page, there is a donation button that you can access. It tells you more about the trail. It tells you more about how you can join up with me. I have five meeting locations throughout Southern Ontario where you can meet up, join, hike for a day or a night. If hiking's not your thing, then it's a donation button. You can make a donation. All the money is going to the Canadian Mental Health Association, so I've joined up with them. Or gear, you know, gear is always good to come this way because it's a lot of money getting everything in order for a trip like this. Per trip I do cost me anywhere between four to $6,000. I'm okay with that because I understand the value of experience, but you know, whatever helps out is greatly appreciated. If people do make a donation because it is 
a recognized charity, you will receive a tax receipt along with it. But my main goal is to get people on the trail, get people active, and I want to work through how you can access the outdoors. You know, maybe have some conversations about mental health and just how incredible this trail is because every time I come home, I live out west right now, and I hear a lot of the same thing. It's like, oh, it's miserable living here, or I don't like this area. And for me, the Niagara region is such a recognizable location. People come from all around the world to be to this area, and people just don't appreciate it. So I want to take the best out of where we're from. In my opinion, I think the Bruce Trail is amazing. And, you know, show people that these resources do exist in our community, but we just don't know how to access it. I think I'll end with this question. And uh, and you mentioned already the importance of being in the moment when it comes to a mental health journey, as far as focusing on the moment and not trying to expect overnight change. But there is more to this part of being in the moment. And so there's a quote of yours, the past and future are irrelevant when we start living in the moment. When we appreciate our experiences rather than obsess over the idea that there might be something better. Can you tell me about that? I think we get so caught up that there might be something better, that there always could be something better. And of course, there's going to be better, but you can't focus on that or you're going to get nowhere. So when we live in the moment and when we experience the moment, we're gaining more out of it. I know I'm really guilty of this. Like, I'll be on my phone and I'm like, oh, what's everyone doing? You know, that fear of missing out. And I obsessively, compulsively just want that to happen. But it doesn't get me anywhere. And when we live in the moment, it's so freeing. You know, thinking about the path that you've taken in life, biking across Canada, biking across New Zealand, biking across South America, to have the confidence to be able to hike 900 kilometers this fall and to have the confidence to do all of these things and to believe in yourself. Uh, how do you think your dad would see the person that you are today? Aww. I, I think my dad would be very proud of who I am and who I've become. He is the reason why I love the outdoors. I remember us being young and he'd always have me on the boat and he's really the one who introduced me the outdoors and I'm very thankful for it. I think that without having that as a child, I probably wouldn't be experiencing life in this way. So I hope he's proud. Well, I think he's proud and that's all I can ask for. Thanks so much for taking the time and, and sharing your story. Thank you. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to read more about Amy and her travels, head to aimoutside.com. Keep a lookout for her this fall as she hikes the Bruce Trail. The music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.